Hey everybody, welcome to the podcast. Uh, my name is Jun Lee. Uh, this is episode number six of Doing It for Bartello, but today kind of marks a special new start for the podcast. Uh, if you haven't noticed the artwork already for the show, we're now hosted by the Hardball Times, which of course is one of the best baseball blogs on the internet. And uh, the editor, Paul Swyden, and David Appleman, who's the head of Fangraphs, were gracious enough to uh, offer me the platform of the Hardball Times to host this new podcast on uh, as the Hardball Times' new podcast. Um, this is something that I kind of started up a couple weeks ago to talk about a variety of things that are on my mind beyond just baseball. I'm a big baseball guy. Uh, I wrote a couple pieces in the 2015 calendar year for uh, for the Hardball Times, and uh, I love baseball. Baseball is my number one sport in my book. Uh, but this is going to be something different beyond just baseball. And I hope you guys do enjoy the ride and uh, are willing to listen to things beyond, you know, just analytical baseball uh, statistics talks. And as much as I love that kind of stuff, uh, this is not necessarily what the podcast is going to be focused on. If you just look at the artwork uh, and some of the past guests we've had, uh, this is going to be a, a podcast that covers a whole lot of ground, whether it's, you know, all sports that and sports issues that are on my mind and pop culture issues that are on my mind and the minds of my friends and my guests. Uh, make sure to go back and listen to some of those episodes. Um, there are some audio kinks and issues that we have to work out uh, that we will work out and we'll get better as, as the podcast ages and, and matures and I figure out all this technical mumbo jumbo on my end on the back end stuff. It is a one man operation. Uh, but please if you haven't listened to the show already, which I assume most of you guys are, uh, you guys haven't listened to the show already uh, with the with the podcast now being hosted on the Hardball Times, please do make a point and go back to listen to the old episodes. Uh, the first episode, we have Jay Caspian Kang on of the New York Times, formerly of Grandland, and uh, Jay and I talked about a wide range of things, ranging just from growing up in North Carolina uh, as an Asian American to the start of Grandland and working for Bill Simmons and now his reaction to seeing uh, Grandland shut down and, and all that stuff. I also had Mina Kimes on and we t- also talked about a variety of things, feature writing, uh, the Seahawks and among many other things. Uh, and then I also had my friend Taylor Weston on to talk about her favorite things of 2015. Uh, and then I also had my friend Ruthie on to talk about Star Wars, The Force Awakens and just our general thoughts on the movie and the whole it, uh, it, all the stuff that that is going on with Star Wars. I'm a big, big Star Wars fan, so I kind of really wanted to get that that out there. Uh, today's episode is uh, going to be the first episode that's kind of touching into that pop culture vein. Uh, we have Dave King on, and if you guys followed Fire Joe Morgan way back in the old days, you guys certainly know who he is. He's one of the three main voices of that website alongside Michael Schur and Alan Yang. Uh, he was Dak, or his initials. Uh, we talked about the beginnings of five Joe Morgan and his time ranked for Parks and Rec under Mike Schur, otherwise known as Ken Tremendous. And I'm sure a lot of you guys uh, watched that show, watched and loved uh, Parks and Rec as much as I did. Uh, so we talked about some of the the shenanigans that went on in the writer's room and what that process like was like uh, writing those episodes uh, in that kind of absolutely dynamic atmosphere. Um, so to that stays interview. Uh, but if you haven't already, please make sure to check out the show on iTunes and hit the subscribe button. If you guys do enjoy the show, uh, please leave us a rating, uh, positive or negative. I, I really do appreciate any feedback that you guys have. Uh, and if you guys want to email the show, you can do that, doing it for Bartolo at gmail.com. If you guys want to follow me on Twitter and you have any feedback or any guests that you want to have on the show as well, you can tweet at me at IamJunLee, J-O-O-N-L-E-E. You can also send me an email. My email is in my Twitter bio as well. Uh, but... If you guys have any guests on uh, or any any people that or any things that you want to hear us discuss beyond the things that we are already are discussing on the show. Uh, again, this is a baseball podcast, partially. I'm a big baseball guy, love baseball. It is my number one sport, and I love talking about baseball and statistics and the nitty-gritty of that kind of stuff. But we're going to be trying to expand the horizons of what this podcast is going to be for the Hardball Times, and we're going to be talking about... Football, basketball, you know, anything that's kind of on my mind, pop culture movies, lots of things. So if you guys do enjoy that stuff, please make sure to hit the subscribe button on whatever podcasting, listening format thing you use on your phone or your computer or whatever. Uh, make sure to subscribe just to keep up to date with the new episodes and the ones that uh, came out in the past. And hopefully you guys enjoy as well. Uh, so 
thank you guys for checking out the podcast number one uh i really do appreciate every single one of you guys listening to the show uh and and making the the risk i guess to to check out a new podcast um so without further ado this is dave king of fire joe morgan and parks and rec and i hope you guys enjoy it Uh, Dave, thanks for uh, coming on to the show today. I really appreciate the time. Yeah, my pleasure, man. So, How's it going? yeah, it's going good. Uh, so you grew up in Needham, uh, and I assume you grew up a Red Sox fan growing yes, up absolutely. around here. Uh, what was kind of the thing that got you into baseball? Uh, and also, as a, as a comedy writer, what, what got you into comedy? Um, well, we'll start with baseball. It's sort of hard when you grow up, as you know, in the Boston area, not to be kind of uh, brought up with baseball as part of your life. So um, I'm sort of uh, ashamed to say that I'm a first-generation Red Sox fan. By that, I mean, like, my parents are from New York. They weren't Yankees fans, but they uh, sort of adopted the Red Sox when they moved to the Boston area and then kind of passed that on to me. And when I was a kid, I mean, like, I was eight when the Sox were in the World Series in 1986, and that was the sort of, like, wound that it was like that was like when Harry Potter gets his like lightning star or something on yeah. the forehead or <laughs> right. like okay well that dug so deep into my soul that now I have to like follow this you're too you're too far in already to not I was totally pot committed at that point emotionally yeah exactly and I mean I played baseball as a kid but I was uh, terrible but uh, I always enjoyed it and then um yeah, sort of got a, like, second wave of interest in it around college when, um, this would be in, like, the late 90s when Sabermetrics and, um, you know, sort of, of, you know, going not quite mainstream, but, like, you know, people were kind of seeking it out and the internet obviously made it, made, like, uh, advanced metrics or even not that advanced metrics, but just, like, interpretation of basic metrics sort of more available to uh the kind of like everyday baseball fan this sounds really boring already i feel like i'm going down a bad road but uh yeah so that was like and then also that was right around the time that the Sox uh got pedro they traded for pedro and i remember that being a sort of moment of like this is this could be it this is like this could be the beginning of a new era for the Red Sox, and it's time to like get back into things. So, um, yeah, that's that sort of like ebb and flow of my love of baseball. So, how did you kind of find an interest in, in writing uh, for television, or, or writing about comedy, or just kind of getting into to media in general? Yeah, I sort of always um, liked funny things and comedy, you know, like stand up sketch when i was in uh middle school i would go home and watch whatever was on comedy central which at the time was like kids in the hall reruns snl reruns and then like short attention span theater and um these are shows that only people like 35 years and older will remember but uh stand up stand up and um it was really like the a-list all of these shows that were just like stand-ups and funny people and um comics only with paul provenza so i got to, to really be familiar with like sketch and stand up and I was just really drawn to it and was always kind of like the guy who made my friends and family laugh, like not quite a class clown so I was a little too scared to be that, but more just kinda like, you know, the funny dude and uh or a funny dude. And um, so I kind of in the back of my head was always like, well, I want to do if I could ever do something that involved comedy in any way, that's what I'd want to do. And then in my teenage years, like I sort of um, I wrote a zine in high school with friends of mine. They started at it and I kind of helped out here and there. That was super fun. And then when I got to college, that's when you sort of like find out, oh, there's actually like writing jobs or it's sort of a thing that you never I didn't spend a lot of time thinking of oh there's writers for shows oh people are writing Johnny Carson's jokes I mean that's who I grew up with they're Letterman's jokes and I love Letterman um you kind of doesn't even really occur to you 
especially back then when like I think a lot more attention has been put on writers and writing staffs and what that process is like. I think the world is a little more familiar with that uh, now than it was like 20 years ago. Uh, so anyway, I got to college and then uh, started writing for the magazine. And then I just got to know people who had actually like graduated and done that thing. And you start hearing about the sort of like way you go about it. Suddenly it doesn't seem like such a pipe dream. Um, and so then I was like, sort of deal I made with myself was like, I'll move to New York and give myself a couple of years to try writing for television. And if it doesn't work out at all, go to law school and um, kill myself in eight years. (laughs) (laughs) Which I'm, yeah, so luckily it worked out. Uh, So so once you got to Harvard, is that where you met uh, Mike Schur and Alan Yang? Yeah, I met Mike. I was a freshman when Mike was a senior. So Mike is the guy who created that. Parks and Rec and co-created Brooklyn Nine. He co-created both Parks and Rec and Brooklyn Nine Nine, and he's um, been—I'm lucky to say—been like a mentor and friend of mine for going on 20 years now. And uh, we definitely instantly bonded over uh, Red Sox and baseball and comedy. And uh, he went to write for SNL soon after he graduated. Kind of stayed in touch over the years. When I moved to New York, I hung out with him and we watched Red Sox games together and. Um, he was like nice enough to take me to like the AFC championship game with the uh, Patriots and they beat the uh, Broncos, went on to play the Panthers in the Super Bowls. So we kind of had always been sports buddies and, um, yeah, that's, he was, uh, he was, uh, pretty much the funniest, smartest dude I'd ever met when I met him in college. And then, um, yeah, he was luckily down the road. He called me and asked me to join uh, Parks and Rec and it was like, yeah, of, of course. I would say it's my favorite show already, so I was really happy to join the staff. So re- rewinding before you, you joined Parks and Rec and the writing staff yeah. there, um, you guys obviously wrote Fire Joe Morgan, which is notorious as kind of one of the uh, the baseball blogs that started it all uh, and the, the, kind of the internet craze that, that surrounds baseball uh, and the baseball Twitter community and, and everything like that. Uh, how did that start for you guys and, and – uh, what was what were what was kind of the motivation and the thing that ignited you kind of yeah starting it all? It was kind of like well the real precursor to Barger Wangen. Um, so this when did we start it two thousand five I think we started Barger Wangen. Does that sound right? Something, Something like, like that, that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the real precursor to this was like the years two thousand three and two thousand four were peak Red Sox hysteria for most fans, myself included. That's just to, like, remind you and everyone, like, the Sox in 2003, that was Wakefield gives up the homer to Aaron Boone and was crushing. And All of New England cries. All of New England, it's like, yeah, it's, it's you know, Shakespearean tragedy. And then 2004... Down 3-0, Incredible Redemption. They somehow come back to beat the Yankees. Everybody cries again. Everybody cries again. I'm in New York at the time. You're in enemy territory. It was like really kind of crazy days where like I remember I would walk. I would take the subway. This is during like both times in 2003 and 2004 when they played the Yankees in the postseason. I would walk around New York like wearing a Red Sox hat but being aware that this is like, you know, the equivalent of wearing like a red coat in colonial America or whatever. And so you would like make eye contact on the subway with other people wearing Red Sox gear and just they would like give you a little nod and be like, we could do this. Like We're in this together. I know we're in the worst place in America to be right now, but um, it was really like incredible feeling. And we would get together with all our friends to watch these games and these Game one of every series felt like the most important game of all time. It just felt so like, of course, I'm in my early 20s or mid-20s. Everything feels like even more life and death. Um, So, okay, this is all a really long answer. I'm sorry. So (laughs) the point of this, I'm just rambling, but the point of this is that at the time, there were a bunch of us, me and Mike and a bunch of other friends included, who would just email each other kind of nonstop about the games, about um, also about just like, holy shit. Barry Bonds, look at these numbers. It's crazy how good he is. All of that stuff. Um, and then eventually, 
after the Sox won in 2005, I was like, I'm just going to start this blog. I didn't know anything really about blogs. It was almost like blog was like the word that you kept hearing. And you were like, I guess it's a thing. I'm just going to start one. And I gave everyone the password. It was like, if you guys want to post stuff on here, you can. Instead of like emailing each other, we could just post it. And it might just be easier this way for us to read it. And so very quickly, um, Mike latched onto it. And Alan Yang, who I was working with at the time, he latched onto it too. And just sort of we, the three of us started writing stuff, Mike mostly. And over the months and years after that, it sort of quote-unquote took off to the extent that it ever took off. Um, but that was really always the purpose of it was just to entertain kind of each other i think that's why it was so kind of like uh uh like vulgar <laughs> and uh i don't know how else you describe it but it certainly wasn't the kind of thing where we had like um any sort of um like broad aspirations for it it was just like i, I think there's actually a lesson to be learned there which is that we wanted it to be specific and in our own voice and we weren't trying to we the idea was never like let's write this and maybe cnnsi will pick it up as a column or something like we didn't want to be like other stuff or absorbed by other stuff we were like this is what again now i'm speaking like after it started gaining traction we were like let's just keep doing our thing and writing the way we write um and it was super fun it was like it was really fun to be a part of that so what what was kind of the most surreal thing that happened during during this time when you guys were writing and people were reading it? What was kind of the the craziest thing or uh, memory you have of wow this thing is really getting big? Well, you know, eventually we got you know sort of uh, more popular writers and a couple of athletes like actually got in touch with us. And that was always a thrill for when we people would either like promote us on on more popular websites or you know we win a poll or something but i have to say that the the sort of like kind of happiest or most surreal feeling was really early on when you really we we didn't promote it at all we didn't even really like email it beyond the 20 people who I knew and talked to regularly or who we all knew, but slowly it sort of, you know, snowballed. And what I remember is early on installing whatever stat tracker or something like I had the most basic, whatever HTML code on there. It's a really ugly site still fire Joe Morgan is to this day. And the first day that we got, something like a hundred page views. It was like, how did that happen? I mean, that's no, that's no web traffic at all. And by the end we were getting, you know, a, a lot more than that. Um, but just this, like the very early days where we saw it very slowly grow and keep in mind also like, uh, you know, we were writing for shows that like, you know, hundreds of thousands of people watch or Mike was writing for SNL and millions of people watch that. But somehow this thing where we could see that, like, 280 people looked at our site today, that's insane. Like, that was way more gratifying than our actual jobs. And that's what I, that's what I remember from the early days of it, just being like, this was a 100% thing that we started on our own. Again, mostly thanks to Mike and Alan and their writing and how much time they put into it. It grew into something... Even even just that it would be on the scope of our friends seemed like awesome to me. I was like, I never expected that to happen. What do you think about it made it more gratifying than the TV writing that you were doing at the time? Well, because I, I mean, I guess selfishly it was entirely our own. It was unexpected and it was also, you know, something that us and only us, or we and only we had created. So there was something that felt like kind of magical about it where you put this thing out into the ether and then a thousand, 10,000 people a day are checking into it and you don't really know who they are. You get emails from people. Um, it, that was like, just, it seemed like we had 
you know, the way that people watch the TV shows we work for, definitely there were fans of those shows. And then, again, at the time it was a little different because Mike's writing for SNL, but there's something about people who, like, our site was so specific and niched. I mean, basically, what we were doing at the time was making fun of sports writers who believed in a certain way of thinking, which is, we thought for, like, there was no way that anyone would possibly be interested in that. Um, but again, I think there's, a, a, not to be whatever, not that there's a moral to the story, but I do think the takeaway from that is that specificity is not a bad thing, and being super narrow isn't a bad thing if you do it in a way that, you know, it, it, there's something about, like, the people who were drawn to it were really into it, and it sort of didn't matter, if, you know, even if, sorry, if 1% of the people in America like something, that's still, you know, three and a half million people or whatever. Mm-hmm. Not that that many people read it in a second, but you know what I mean? It was Right, like, yeah. Yeah, um, so, yeah, it, it was just something about the way that we never expected anyone to care about it or find it. I, we didn't know that what, I mean, like, I don't, I still don't really know what blogger or blogspot is or how that works. <laughs> like, <laughs> it was like, it was I'm pretty sure blogspot is, is completely irrelevant at this point. I, yeah, it has to be right. I mean, I don't even, it's all, yeah, I don't, I don't know what fire Joe Morgan would be now if we had started it now, you know, I don't know if it would be like, a Twitter and Tumblr thing or a podcast. I don't know. It is kind of interesting because like they're for whatever reason in 2005, if you wanted to like start a thing, the default was you started a blog. It was almost kind of like a cliche about how everyone had a blog the way now everyone has a podcast. I say that as someone who has a podcast, so I'm aware I'm not like, (laughs) yeah, I love podcasts. Um, So I don't know what it would have been. Uh, at a different moment in history, but that's whatever. So, and you guys wrote under kind of pseudonyms for a long time. What went into the decision to to come out publicly as these TV writers writing this sabermetric journalism criticism, baseball journalism criticism blog? Uh, Well, there was sort of like no, I think if I remember, like we didn't start out specifically with the, with this idea of like, we'll be anonymous. Uh, it was more just that we each had handles already. Like, I had created a blog for my family, and I just used my initials. And Yang had a blog where he pretended to be Junior Harrington, the Indiana Pacers player. So his tag was already Junior. And Mike had always had this funny pseudonym in his brain called Ken Tremendous. So people signed up and just like used silly names. The idea wasn't like, we'll we'll like, you know, be the masked crusaders of baseball criticism, criticism. It was more like, uh, this is just, that was just the way to do it. And then eventually, I think really what happened was once we, I think we felt like, well, we've, we've made substantial attacks on other professionals and it's at a certain point, it becomes unfair to do that anonymously because you should stand behind. If you're really trying to attack someone's like work, then you should at least have the decency to put your name on it and stand behind it. And so as funny and irreverent and as like many fucks as we used on the blog, as we were trying to be, it still felt like "Ah, we should, at least take accountability for this. So we just, at some point, we're like, oh, we're these guys, and um, that's what we do. So what, when did you, yeah, so when at what point did you kind of decide that the, the blog was had, had run its course, or, you know, you guys couldn't, you yeah, know? It was a few years later, I mean, it was a combination of, um, I think we kind of felt like there were a variety of things that happened. One was that we all were getting busier with our professional lives. And I think more importantly than that, we felt like we had kind of started to write the same thing repeatedly. Um, and uh, it just felt like kind of a quit while we're ahead thing. It had been more popular and successful than we ever thought. So we looked into the, to the idea of like writing a book and 
you know, kind of danced around that and were, had a couple different ideas of what that could look like. And ultimately it just seemed uh, like it wasn't really the right extension of what we had been doing. So we just decided like, instead of kind of petering out, cause we thought that's the other thing that was happening is we were just like posting less frequently that started happening. And it just seemed like, let's just um, take it out back and uh, old yeller it before it like peters out and, People are like, are people still posting on there? We'd rather just be like, we're done with this for now so that, you know, it's just cleaner that way, I think. Something I think is kind of interesting is that I think there's a lot of overlap between um, the sabermetric smart baseball community and the the people who actually watch Parks and Rec. Um, if you just kind of – if you kind of even just look at baseball Twitter or my friend group or, or – I mean like I'm, I was yeah. a huge Parks and Rec fan um, when it was on the air from the beginning and um, – there's just there seems to be a lot of people who are both in the baseball community and are also watching Parks and Rec. Uh, what I mean, what was what do you think that dynamic is, and why do you think that is? Um, I don't know. I think part of it may be I, there, there may be a vocal minority thing where we you, you might hear more from those people because they're like the hardcore fans of each and like Mike is sort of the common, uh, what do you call it? Like the link between those two things. So I think people, you know, who are fans of both like to make it known that they're fans of both, which is awesome. Um, and then I also just think it's like, um, for lack of a better term, like they both kind of, they're both kind of smart things <laughs> sounds awful <laughs> to say but like i think parks and rec's pretty smart comedy and sabermetric no i'd say that's pretty know. accurate <laughs> yeah i mean i think the kate you know like um it's it's a way of enjoying baseball that's you know not not everyone wants you know a lot of fans don't want any part of it which is totally understandable um but uh yeah i, I think there's sort of like a, I mean i don't know it is an interesting question it's certainly not like we uh you know, there were a couple. There were there were a couple of fun references to be threw out there to um, Fire Joe Morgan and the World of Sabermetrics on the show, and definitely, you know, people enjoyed those. I think <laughs> the the David Eckstein Law Firm um, <laughs> and all the uh... yeah yeah exactly. <laughs> um, Did you see that Eckstein? We're we're speaking to. I don't know when this goes up, but we're speaking on the day of the Hall of Fame elections. Did you see that Eckstein got two votes? Oh, did he? That's amazing. Yeah. So, oh yeah, it's crazy. I was Maybe more sad that Nomar fell off the ballot. I was too. Yeah, it's disappointing. I was obviously like, I'm very pro Tim Raines in the Hall of Fame, obviously, and I thought he actually had a chance based on the early, like the public vote. Right. Yeah. And yeah, uh, and then um, I, I think, think he's going to get it next, next year, year. though. I, he, I think he has to. I think there'll be enough of a campaign. This is last year, and um. But yeah, three people left Griffey off, and two people voted for David Eckstein. So <laughs> there's the the like the you know the dinosaurs are slowly dying, but they're still out there. Like I don't know if I don't know if Clemens or Bonds are going to get in before the end of the ten years, but I think at a certain point the steroid guys are going to start have to getting it. I'm really fascinated to see what happens with Manny next year because um, he's kind of the the highlight player of that class. Um, and yeah. I don't think he really has that big of a shot of getting in because of his just general stupidity around his uh, steroid yeah. use. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, anyway, but going back to, to Parks and Rec, um, at yeah. what point did, did Mike kind of ask you to, to join the writing staff there? Uh, that was season four. So the show, um, Mike, you know, Mike co-created it and um, was really after – after I would say the first season or two, he was really, um, you know, he co-created with Greg Daniels, who took a more of a sort of like big page background um, sort of role after the show was up and running. Um, and he was, he still was instrumental in totally in like shaping arcs of the season and stuff like that. And big decisions. But Mike was really at the helm of the day to day Parks and Rec stuff by, uh, season i would guess you know two, end of season two season three so yang was working on it already and then mike i was working on um workaholics at the time on comedy central and mike called me at the beginning of season four and asked if i wanted to join that was it was like i mean it really was my favorite show parks 
was my favorite show on the air already and to be asked to join that it was like a dream um so i obviously uh jumped at the chance and was there for the last four seasons and uh so we so it was me and mike and yang were there for that time and then we had matt murray for a while who was uh occasionally wrote his marbles on Farja Morgan. So there was a, a large FJM contingent there. Um, and we certainly at times would drive the other writers crazy by doing like baseball trivia quizzes on the computer when we should have been rewriting and stuff. There's a website called Sporkle. Oh like yeah. No, I'm, yeah, I'm very quite familiar. <laughs> it's a real, uh, what do you call it? Like black, black, black hole of time. Yes, you just you'd go on there, and then we started. And you look started, up, and and you're sweaty, and it's uh, been five hours uh, later, and you just don't know where time went. Yeah. So we would any sort of baseball, you know, like whatever top ten seasons by position, all time, you know, wins above replacement, uh, anything like that. It was just a dream for us to do shouting out names, one person typing. And then we started placing like very small bets on Sporkle. So it'd be like, all right, I, I can go over 80%. I think on this one, you're on five bucks, start the clock. Uh, so, I mean, we did a lot of work, but that was one of the more popular ways of uh, procrastination. <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah. What was, what was the writing process like for you guys when you guys were coming up with an episode uh, and, and kind of developing the characters? Um, on parks, yeah, uh, very collaborative. Like really, um, Mike was definitely the sort of, um, you know, he was the final authority. Um, and then, but there were also other people who uh, were, you know, the other sort of like, um, I don't know what you call it, but like main voices there. You know, Dan Gore, who's now running Brooklyn, was really instrumental in pretty much every single story. Um, and Yang and Aisha Mahar um, and Matt Murray and Harris Whittles no longer with us. And all of these people, Katie Dippold, Chelsea Peretti for a time. I mean, it was an incredible staff of writers. Um, so we would all talk about the stories and it sort of would funnel its way to the top. You know, we often, you, the default thing is we'd like, there were about 10 people, 10 writers, and we'd split into two rooms. One room would work on a story and one room would work on either a script or another story or a rewrite or a more specific problem area. And uh, then, you know, we do some work on the story and then um, pitch that to Mike or Dan or whoever was sort of the like highest person uh, available uh, and then, you know, get their notes, go from there. Um, it was a lot of just talking in small groups and hashing stuff out and really, uh, what do you call it? Sort of like, uh, you know, double checking and at every stage we would, uh, really kind of review the story and make sure it held together and make sure it felt, you know, like it was, um, interesting and also sound structurally and everything that, you know, you want to sort of, uh, half hour TV show to be uh, and then eventually one person would be assigned the script and they would go off and write a rough draft of the of this script uh, and they would come back and then we would spend a, a lot of time as a group again rewriting that there'd be a table read we'd rewrite after that um, so and then you know eventually we'd get shot but it was uh, a very I, more so I think even in most places although it really varies from show to show, but it was a really collaborative process, except for that like brief period of time where a writer was off on script. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I mean, it was, it was like the people who worked there were, uh, they're awesome. And I was also the like luxury of working with people who were already friends of mine. It was really a kind of, uh, I don't know. I don't know if I'll ever have another opportunity like that. It was really, we kind of tried to remind ourselves while we're there, like, this is crazy. Like we're eating lunch with our best friends and also making a good show and no one's yelling at each other. And this just doesn't happen very often in your one's professional career. So what, what are some of the memories and, and, and stories that stick out in your mind from your time writing on the show um, with, with, you know, while writing with your best friends and, and uh, being in that kind of creative environment? Uh, let's see. Marty's stories. Um, I just remember, like, so Murray and I, Murray is, Matt Murray is a guy who wrote for SNL for a very long time. 
and uh, and is now writing for Brooklyn Nine Nine and developing his own show. And he's like the funniest, nicest dude in the world. And we lived together in New York for a while. So he was kind of tied up doing other shows. Um, and when I started at Parks, and then like a year and, or a season and a half later, I my biggest memory is Mike coming into the kitchen during a break and being like, hey, I think we should hire Matt Murray. And I was like, yes, please. <laughs> like, It's so crazy. I can't think of another real like line of work where your boss comes in and is like, I think we'll bring in this other really good friend of ours. I, I know this doesn't sound great from a sort of like nepotism angle, but, um, you know, there were also a lot of people who Mike had hired who we didn't know at all before. Um, in terms of, uh, like, while we were there, the, you know, I don't know, there was some, there was a lot of sparkle, I'll say that. I'm trying to remember what else he was, uh, he was kind of known for, but nothing's really springing to mind, or maybe nothing that I should share on the podcast, I don't know. Uh, so you wrote the you wrote the episode Cones of Dunshire, um, which is yeah. which is um, uh, obviously notorious in the series for being Ben Wyatt's uh, homemade game that that eventually yeah. blew up by the end of the series uh, in in the world yeah. of Pawnee. Um, is it crazy to see that that actually became a reality that that game actually became something that is existent in the real world? It's very weird. I mean, I still don't fully understand exactly what it is. It's like kind of a real game, but it's for charity or something. They made a real game that you can play if you go to Gen Con or something. And then there's, I don't know, I don't fully understand it, but I love anytime there's any mention of it. It's obviously like hilarious. And I love that people, it's that people remember it is really funny. I do have to say, like, that's another example of, uh, like I technically wrote the episode, but um, other than the name Cones of Dunshire, there and you know some of the specifics, which really anyone, I mean, they're total nonsense. So um, I, I, it was another thing where like I was right about to go off on script, and we realized we didn't have pulled uh, uh, open, which is you know the sort of like two one or two minutes right before credits. Uh, or maybe we had one and it got scrapped. I forget exactly what happened. And so uh, Mike was like, we need something. To, you know, we need to find out. We need to figure out what that is. I think we knew that we needed something. Ben, we, that's what it was. We knew that Ben wasn't going to be working. And the last time he wasn't working, he had done claymation, <laughs> gotten involved in that. Requiem for a Dream, dream. yeah. <laughs> Requiem for a Dream, of course. And it was, uh, oh, Requiem for a Tuesday. Oh, Requiem for you right. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it had that REM song in it and it was terrible. And, and last uh, two it, seconds and... Yeah, exactly. Yes, <laughs> he worked on it for like three days, but there was two seconds of footage. And, so, he, and he held I up think... the uh, he held up the claymation figure and was like, "Is this what a depressed person looks like?" Looks like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, oh man, unemployed Ben Wyatt. There's nothing like it. Uh, so I think we, I think what we were originally going to do is he was going to do another claymation thing, and then we were like, "That feels like we did that." And I think it was Megan Amram, another incredibly talented writer, who pitched that he should create his own board game. And Mike was like, "Oh, that's yes, that's it." And he was like, just, he was like, just have fun with that and make it, you know, silly and ridiculous. And so that's, that's sort of where it came from. Um, and it was really fun to shoot Mike. It was the kind of thing where like the, I don't know, it just took on a life of its own where Mike got really into it and Adam thought it was funny. You know, he, he's not like the biggest gamer, but he knows enough to like tap into that nerddom and polar just thought it was so i mean she obviously like appreciated the comedy but it was like so ridiculous to her we shot all these alts where she was like this is what are we doing here guys like <laughs> could be uh, like how many of these are we really going to use and it was clear that we were doing this more for us than for the show um but uh it was really fun and then yeah it ended up like coming back and i did when, a couple other episodes when you have a, a cast as dynamic as, as the parks and rec cast when you have you know amy poehler aziz uh yeah. you know nick offerman chris pratt uh all these amazing actors and comedians 
how difficult is it when you have those kind of amazing people uh, and these characters that are so well developed? How hard is it to to write for for a show like that? Uh, I, you know, part of me wants to say that it makes it like easier. I mean, especially when I had gotten there, the characters were so fully fleshed out and they were so disparate and clear. And you know, Mike would kind of remind us that this was a show where in a perfect world, no, none of the lines are interchangeable, meaning that if one character says a line, it should be in there. It should be either in their at the very least in their voice, but also have the attitude of that character or the drive of that character. And so a line that Ron would say, we should never be able to just, swap that out and give it to Tom Haverford because the words shouldn't make sense in his mouth, Um, which is kind of like an obvious thing, but also I think was really true of Parks. Um, And like one of its strengths was that we, you know, these characters were really well-defined. You see the same things on shows like Community and 30 Rock at the time. They had very similar sort of like ensemble casts. Everyone was... Just basically the entire NBC Thursday lineup at that time. Well, yeah, I mean, it really was, at the time, really was, like, cool to be, I mean, 30 Rock is, for my money, like, the funniest, most incredible show of all time. The amount of jokes they did and the stories and the, like, the dovetailing they did, I mean, I was just, like, awestruck by it constantly. Um, But anyway, all of this is to say that there were, like, kind of cheat codes you could enter into the script that felt like you they weren't even fair like it wasn't even writing i mean the one that we usually talk about which is really true is that if you didn't have a blow to a scene meaning like a joke at the end of the scene you didn't know how to get out of it if chris pratt was in it you could just write andy jumps over the counter and you knew it would be super like (laughs) the funniest thing in the episode (laughs) um but also you just like you know uh, again, I, I started in the fourth season. So there was all these references to draw on. There was like a kind of um, meaning references within the show that, like you know, Ron could talk about his love of breakfast foods or whatever, or Ben could talk about Game of Thrones, and like you, that would everything was you know. I, I realized at one point, like if you didn't know the characters in the show, you really missed a lot of the jokes, which is. True for most shows, but not true for all comedies. Like South Park, you don't you like South Park is, which is like incredibly funny, and does like somehow does a new satire every week. But you don't really need to know that much about the characters or their history to sit down and like you'll get it. Yeah. And uh, but with Parks, like so much of the comedy comes from really like what these characters are and their backstory and that like whatever you know like it helps to know that. Ben Wyatt gets turned on when Leslie wears roller skates or whatever ridiculous (laughs) details. And our fans paid a lot of attention to that stuff. So I guess this is a really long way of saying that like it kind of, you know, and also just the strength of the performance, which I think is what you were asking originally is like, you know, you, we could get away with stuff that were like, you know, those talking heads, which were the little, where people were, would talk to camera. Um, and sort of uh, like the sort of docu style talking to camera bits, um, th- we could get away with jokes that might not be like the m- most cleverly written jokes if they were just had like a strong attitude or something. We knew that our performers would just knock it out of the park or give you a slight twist on it that would. I mean, and down to like every last cast member is you know, kind of especially like Jim O'Hare who played uh, Terry, Jerry, Gary, whatever you want to call him. And Gary, Retta, yeah, yeah, all of those names. And uh, Retta as Donna would just like, you know, you give her one line to say to Cameron, she would just like find the one thing that makes it way funnier than you wrote it as. So I kind of feel like we cheated. That's my take on it. We don't deserve any credit. <laughs> Um, I think something that happens in sitcoms is that when you're so far down uh, or so far past, you know, it, at a certain point with a sitcom, um, the characters kind of start to become caricatures of themselves. And I don't think that ever happened with Parks and Rec. Um, yeah. How did how did you guys avoid that as a as a as a writer's room? 
Well, I think to Mike's credit, like one of the things that we, you know, didn't shy away from was characters like kind of not changing, but um, progressing in life. So people would find themselves regularly in new situations. Um, You know, it wasn't a show that got like reset at the end of every episode. Um, There was some serialization to it. And I think that really helped because, you know, like, for example, um, character like April started out the show kind of just eye rolling her way through life and wondering what the best way was to like goof off at work and then ends up married and has to deal with the realities of like, is my life still going to be kind of interesting and carefree as a, you know, as a married person, even though I'm in my like mid twenties, that's like a pretty boring way of tell of what we're hopefully very of summarizing what we're hopefully very funny stories. But I think that's one way that like, the characters didn't just become heightened versions of themselves. So, and also it helped to have like people, you know, move, uh, you know, just having like Anne and Chris leave the show in some ways felt like, um, and then we get, and then like Billy Eichner coming on board and sort of not breathe new life necessarily, but a little bit of that. And just like, you know, everyone kind of, uh, you know, people changing jobs, people changing attitudes, um, I think the time jump in season seven was like a good way to just kind of mix things up and be like, well, let's skip past the stuff that we, you know, the like, we don't need to do the uh, delivery of the triplets episode this way. And let's kind of kick things even further down the road and see what that brings us. So uh, I t- total credit to make sure on those on all that, because it was like, uh, I think he was, yeah, definitely aware that like, we can't just leave these people in stasis. You got to find some way of. You know, even a guy like Tom, who the whole time was really just like, you know, wanted to be a billionaire mogul, you know, he 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 certainly wasn't just that, especially towards the end of the show. You know, he was very serious about uh, falling in love and like really, I mean, again, it seems weird to say this about a character who's kind of on the surface so ridiculous, but he really was trying to like. We did stories where he trying to use the lessons that he had learned in past business failures to make himself a better business fan. And I think that's like the way that you keep people from becoming uh, just sort of caricatures, you know. So what what are yeah. yeah. So what are some of the the big takeaways you uh, take from being in that writer's room with uh, that group of people? Oh, man, that's a tough question. First one is definitely like if you're with. This is a comedy, this is specific to to comedy writing, but if you're with funny people, then you don't, you shouldn't worry too much about making the product funny. Like, if you're with, if we have funny writers and funny performers, and we absolutely had funny, we had the greatest cast on earth, and we had some of the funniest writers that I've ever met in that room, we can make any, hopefully we can make any story funny. That's not meant to sound boastful. That's meant to be like instructive in terms of how do we get a story out there? So from, you know, certainly we wanted like a couple of big funny moments in every episode. So you could always pitch jokes. You could pitch like things that would look funny and that you knew would play as funny, but in the story breaking process, the process of coming up with story the attitude was always like, let's make this a good story first. And then we know that it will be, once we put it on the page, it can be very funny. So um, instead of worrying about like, I mean, that, that to me, I, I was a real, that was like very eye opening me, eye opening to me because uh, I sort of assumed that a show that funny, there'd be a very high premium on like from an early uh, stage of getting getting you know the funniest thing possible uh, in the script, but really it was sort of like uh, that was always sort of like the last ingredient in the mix or whatever. I feel like I'm just talking on and on, and I haven't said anything funny. I really apologize. About <laughs> what I'm uh, I, I feel like comedy writers are supposed to be have like jokes at their disposal. And I feel like a boring professor or something. <laughs> um, is there? I mean, you have your podcast, The Great Debates, and then uh, the, yeah. sh- the show Love is coming on uh, on yes. Netflix. Uh, w- could you just uh, talk about the 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 projects? I guess. 
Yeah, I'd love to. You know, the great debates is really fun for me, and it kind of reminds me of the early days of Fire Joe Morgan, where like this is a thing kind of totally outside what I do uh, in the day to day, like you know, uh, job wise. And so it's me and my friend Steve Healy, who's also a super funny comedy writer. He's also from Needham, Massachusetts, and he uh, has written for The Office and Thirty Rock, and he's a novelist. He's written. Uh, um, a couple of great books. He's done one coming out in June. And we just have this podcast that's really kind of silly called The Great Debates, where we'll just argue any topic that we choose. Um, and we try to like earnestly attack silly subjects, is maybe the best way I could put it. Um, so that's super fun. That's been out there. And then Love is a show that I've been working on now. We're, in the, we're writing the second season of it right now. And the first season is airing on Netflix. And that's with uh, Judd Apatow. Yeah, so Judd co-created it with uh, Paul Russ and Leslie Arfin. Paul Russ co-stars in it. He's super funny. Uh, and Gillian Jacobs from Community is on it. And she's incredible. Um, and that's been um, really fun to work on. And it's like uh, it's like a little realer and um, a little more focused than Parks was. It's really interesting. We're really slowly telling a story about uh, a relationship. So I'm, I'm really curious to see uh, what people think of it. I think they're going to really uh, enjoy it. So that's in uh, February 19th that comes out. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, Dave, yeah. uh, thank you so much for the time. Oh, and Again, thanks again to Dave King for coming on the show this week, and thanks to you guys for listening to the show. For many of you guys, this is the first episode of doing it for Bartolo, and I really do appreciate you guys taking the jump and listening to a new podcast. If you guys want to check out the previous episodes and the previous interviews that we had, make sure to head over to the iTunes archive and listen to those and download those on whatever podcasting platform you listen to and consume your podcasts. Uh, if you guys enjoy the show, please make sure to leave a rating on iTunes and make sure to hit the subscribe button on iTunes as well. If you guys have any suggestions uh, or improvements or anything that you want to have uh, sent to me, really, uh, you can send an email to doingitforbartolo at gmail.com. You can also follow me on Twitter and tweet me any guest suggestions that you have or any topic suggestions or whatever you guys want to hear on the podcast as well. You can follow me on Twitter at IamJunLee, J-O-O-N-L-E-E. And that just about wraps it up. I hope you guys, again, did enjoy the episode and make sure to stick around and see where this podcast thing goes. Uh, again, thanks to Paul Swiden and David Appleman for taking the chance to bring on the podcast for the Heartball Times. And I really do hope you guys enjoy the show. And uh, if you have any suggestions, make sure to, to hit me up. So until the next episode, uh, thanks again for checking out the show. I'll see you guys in the next one. <laughs>